Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Susan Pendergrass. Susan, you're normally in the host seat on your podcast, but today you're going to be a guest on basically your own podcast. So welcome to I your own podcast. Seats. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, sometimes I do work that needs to be talked about too. So That's right. Um, and that work that we're talking about today is you have a new report out at showmeinstitute.org and it's called The Future of Missouri's Workforce. So we're going to go through it today. We're going to pick out some of the key takeaways, uh, let people know um, what it's all about. So I want to start with the title, Workforce. You hear about workforce, you hear about labor force, uh, job participation. When In this report, when you talk about Missouri's workforce, can you narrow that down a little bit for us? Yeah, so generally the workforce, it, the way I'm using it here is adults between the ages of 25 and 64. And you look at that group of folks that's like you're, you've started on to your adult life at 25, whether you went to college or not. And most people work somewhere in that range of 64. That's what <clears throat> the Bureau of Labor Statistics considers the workforce. Now, um, not that you've necessarily asked, but not everybody in that group is in the labor force, right? So you have a lot of parents home raising children, you have people still in school, you have reasons why people are not in the labor force. And so to be clear, the labor force are people is people who are either working or look, looking for work. So if you're unemployed and actively looking to work, you're in the labor force. If you're working, you're in the labor force. <clears throat> if you are not in school, I mean, if, you, if you're not employed or working, you're not in the labor force. And that includes people in school, people at home, people who are uh, institutionalized, and people who are just not working. And um, so that's kind of an interesting number to track because I think folks maybe think that, hey, everyone in that age range is either working, look, looking for work, maybe in school or raising kids, but that's not true. There's a whole group of people that could be working or looking for work who are not in the labor force. And so before we talk about the future of the workforce, as you surveyed the landscape for this report, what's the current state of Missouri's workforce? Yeah, so it's really been weird in the last decade or so because <clears throat> people, especially men, which is a little harder for folks to understand, uh, have left the labor force. So in Missouri, uh, it used to be about 70 plus percent of folks were in the labor force between the ages of 25 and 64. So working, we're looking for work. That number is down to like 63%. So a third of Missourians in that adult age group are not either working or looking for work. So our labor force numbers, <clears throat> generally speaking, are down labor force participation and, and down pretty low for certain groups like um, black males. I mean, there are certain groups where uh, it it raises the question of who's supporting the economy and, you know, how many people have switched over to being supported by the economy. So in Missouri, a third of our adults are not working or looking for work. Another interesting thing, and just to be clear, this report's got a bunch of statistics and they come from either the St. Louis Federal Reserve, Census Bureau, or in some cases from the Department of Education. So government numbers, um, reliable numbers. And another thing about the current Missouri workforce is that the percentage of uh, adults in that age range who have a college degree had been increasing very steadily over the last probably 50 years, but steadily increasing in Missouri and nationally. But in the just last couple of years, Missouri has taken a turn. 
so that now the percentage of our adults uh, with a bachelor's degree has declined, as has the percentage with a graduate degree. And just to clarify, this is not pandemic related. We are talking about it's actually 2021 data and you know, the full group of adults between 25 and 64 with a bachelor's degree is not sensitive enough to two years of remote working. So essentially that number, you want to guess what, I guess, you know, you read the report. Most people overestimate the percentage of adults with the college degree, but the actual number in Missouri is below 32%, like 31.7%. And that's lower than the national average. And the percentage with uh, graduate degrees has declined as well. So that's down to 12.1%. And, you know, right, it, it is a little bit troublesome that it's below the national averages, those numbers, but worse is the the direction that it's moving. Uh, we would like to see that number just steadily rise, and we're not seeing that. So slightly less educated and shrinking workforce of the adults who are, are have already left the uh, K-12 and actually post-secondary education system. Sure. And I want to get to some of the alternative paths to college later, but I think it's important to frame this uh, as a discussion, not about college as a good in its own right. We, you know, that right. you're not saying that people should get college degrees because that's um, a good in itself, but when you zoom out and you look at being below the national average, that has a negative impact on businesses who are looking at the country saying we're going to need an educated workforce and Missouri falling behind and directionally having a larger, steeper decline in those degrees. What do you think are the medium and long-term impact or short-term if you want impacts to um, companies looking for new places to locate, open up new HQs. Um, where does, where does Missouri, is Missouri attractive in, uh, in that race? Yeah. So, you know, this, like the, the job market for those with only a high school diploma isn't that strong. And we do have projections on jobs between now and 2040 from the Missouri Economic Research and Information Center, Merrick. And, and not surprisingly, the percentage of jobs, future jobs, or job openings uh, that will require a bachelor degree are expected to grow by some 8% and that will require a master's degree grow by 11%. And the projected job growth for jobs that only require house high school diploma is 3%. And that group of workers is much more sensitive to like the chicken plants closing or the UAW. Like these are groups that it's, um, it's getting more difficult to attain middle-class status with only a high school diploma. And right, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go to college and we all know that there's a shortage of folks in the trades, but the trades require post-secondary certifications now, right? Like cars are largely big computers. And so it's not, it's not my grandfather's um, economy where you could graduate from high school and go to work. I grew up in Peoria, Illinois. You could go to work at Caterpillar and have a really nice career. Those jobs just don't exist in the way they used to. So we need to be thinking about ways to get our high school students either college or career ready in a way that matches employers' expectations. And to your point, you know, there are surveys through the Chamber of Commerce and others. And Missouri does not look great in terms of having uh uh, workforce readiness or having a pool of people to draw upon and 
companies will relocate to other states if we don't turn it around. So if we're not making the workforce that companies need for these jobs in state, uh, in your opinion, does it become kind of a circular argument to say, well, don't worry, there are other qualified people getting these certifications. They'll come in from out of state, but it becomes pretty circular when you say, well, the companies aren't going to locate here because there's not the workforce here. So then the workforce won't come from out of state because the companies aren't here. And then, I mean, a death spiral might be too strong of language, but I don't, doesn't it become pretty circular? <laughs> well, so, you know, there's lots of things that make states attractive to companies and families. And I think those are the two groups that we really got to think about in Missouri, because we do have declining population, we have declining K-12 enrollment, and that's not that's not a good situation, right? So things that we know that make states attractive are very low or no uh, income tax. We know that um, great weather, <laughs> right? Good weather in January often makes states attractive. We know that like a growing economy that's got a lot of high-skilled workers makes a state attractive. And I'm kind of right now describing Texas, I guess. I uh, didn't mean to, but like, uh, and then to, and to be clear, more and more states in the last two years, a dozen, have also opened up their public education system so that parents can choose any public or private school. So there are things that make states attractive. And right now, we're not really hitting too many of those. So whether we have to accept the weather we have, um, you know, do we have a growing economy? We do not. We don't have growing population. We uh, don't have a growing group of uh, highly educated people. And we don't give families any flexibility when it comes to their child's education, like none. So we aren't uh, doing anything to make Missouri an attractive state for companies or families to come into. And that's going to impact our workforce. Sure. And not only do we not have a growing population, one of my favorite episodes of your podcast from this year was in last January, you had Ness Sandoval on, and <laughs> he talked about not just a declining population, but an aging population. So even if there are, if we do see some population growth from people moving into the state, as you said, with um, fewer school options, you know, education options, some of the the tax policy, as we've seen with freezing of property tax rates for seniors, we're actually kind of moving, uh, whether it's intentional or not, in a place to attract an older influx of people into Missouri. And that's not going to do a lot for the workforce. Right. So Ness Sandoval, who's a demographer from St. Louis University, said that we now have more deaths than births, right? So we're, that's, that doesn't bode well. And there are things I don't know, you know, to the extent that listeners understand, like how people react to incentives, right? So um, there are implications from policies that our state legislature passes, and they become kind of synergistic when you combine them together, right? And people respond to these incentives. So the zero income tax states, people move there, you have some states like Oregon in the last couple of years have decided to add additional taxes, earning taxes to people making high earnings. That creates a disincentive. They've decided to be pretty friendly to any and all people who like to engage in uh, drug use. That's all legal now. So people are going to respond to those incentives. And right now, what Missouri, in my opinion, has created is sort of this lockdown philosophy of like, we're not going to let parents choose their schools. We're not going to even admit that we have declining population or enrollment. We're going to pretend it's still growing. We are uh, 
just gonna, you know, we have a lot of problems. We've got crime problems in our big cities. And what I don't see happening at the state level is leadership saying, our state's in trouble. What I see is leadership at the state level saying, hey, look at how great we're doing and putting out lists of things to say, Missouri's ranks really high on all these things when the reality is we don't and we are moving in the wrong direction, especially our workforce. One thing in the paper that I mentioned as an aside is like college boards had an advanced placement program for high school students since I was in high school a million years ago. Like, 30 years ago. So this is not a new thing. And students across the country in high school can take advanced placement uh, classes and then an exam and get college credit. And this has been going on a long time. And a lot of people take advantage of this to start college, either more college ready or with credits in their back pocket. Missouri is 43rd in the percentage of kids who pass an AP exam. It's just, we are going to sit that out. Like we're sitting out school choice. We're just going to sit it out and just be like, you know, we don't need those things. And we stand behind, and I know that this is kind of a third rail I shouldn't touch, but we stand behind our tiny little rural high schools. They can't offer AP, but we love them, love them, love them. And what's happening is that's creating... A, a, a systematic problem where we're just not very attractive or competitive. And we need to have leaders who will say, uh, take off the rose colored glasses, take their head out of the sand and say, it's time for us to get serious about changing some of these things. If we want Missouri to be an attractive state to families and businesses. Sure. And jumping back to the report, even before you get to the part about the AP courses, you start with this analysis of the K through 12 system. And you have a phrase in here that to me seems like a future Michael Lewis book. I know he's a listener (laughs) of the podcast. So, um, Can you, what is the bubble of children in elementary and secondary schools? What, what's that bubble about? So this is basically what it is. In the last recession, 2007, 8, 9, in, uh, birth rates declined. Kind of makes sense. We were in a recession, birth rates declined, but they didn't recover. Oftentimes they will recover, but they didn't really, really recover. So I have graphs in there of the kindergarten classes in Missouri, the kindergarten cohorts um, from before that, 2007-8, all the way up to now. And what you see is it peaked in like 2013. These would be the kids born in 2009-ish, 2008-9. That was our biggest kindergarten class we've had in about 20 years. Since 2013, the kindergarten classes have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I had the growth rates and, you know, there's some up and down movement, but smaller over time. And that group from 2013 kindergarten is now juniors and seniors in high school. So the number of high school graduates that we're going to have going forward will decline. Now, I, you can see it, it's so clear, but I hear Desi and other state leaders saying enrollment in our K-12 schools is down because of the pandemic, which is not true. Yes, a lot of kids left during the pandemic and a lot of parents did not enroll their kids in kindergarten or pre-K. They kept them out because they didn't want them wearing masks or other reasons. So yeah, there was a decline, but we've recovered that decline and we are still down. So we will be shrinking in enrollment for at least the next 10 to 12 years because the kindergarten class this year is smaller than the one before two years ago. So um, to say to blame it on the pandemic is simply incorrect. And we now know this and we should, you know, um, I said this on the radio this morning, but like 
there are growth eras for businesses like Blockbuster in the 80s, and there are shrinking areas like Blockbuster in the 90s. And of course, they're gone now. But there are things that you do differently and that management does differently if you're growing or if you're shrinking. And our enrollment will be shrinking. It has been shrinking overall. We used to have about, I think the top for Missouri was getting close to a million students, 910,000, 930,000, something like that. We're down to about 850,000. And there's a government department at the Department of Education has a projections of enrollment report, and they project will be in the 700,000s, like 795 by 2030. So we are going to be declining. We need to think about things that way. And in Missouri specifically, what's the direct line between enrollment and funding for schools? Why is that why, why is that something that the alarm bell should be ringing for people who are concerned about public school funding? So, you know, teachers sign contracts that are for a very long time and they're very hard to break. And that is the main part of funding. And so when you have a teaching staff that uh, doesn't have a ton of flexibility in it, like you can't just get rid of 10% of teachers if enrollment goes down by 10%, um, then you get into a situation where you need enro- uh, you need funding to stay the same and in some cases increase. And in fact, because of a declining enrollment, DESE has asked in their 2025 budget request for $300 million more dollars, uh, partly because districts are struggling because of declining enrollment to me it is a, such a convoluted argument, but they're saying because there's fewer kids, we need to give a higher dollar amount per kid. That's because they have fixed, they have public education tends to lean in really heavily to fixed expenses and, uh, and not variable. Now, you look at like charter schools or, or private schools, charter schools have become a lot more flexible, they might lease their buildings, they might, you know, have shorter teaching contracts, but they have flexibility be- built in in a way that uh, traditional public education is like, funding for the long haul. And when things change, it's hard to make changes. Now, there's things they could be doing, they could be not filling uh, positions. You know, I don't know where folks are listening from, but the Clayton School District in St. Louis County, they had around 2,500 students. They're down about 400. They have been steadily, like every district in St. Louis County, Parkway, Rockwood, they are losing students. And so they're down and it's hard to you know, they're going to have to get rid of teaching staff. They're going to have to make some tough decisions. We had Chad Edelman on the podcast and he talked about bloodletting. You know, there's been a lot of money in the last few years from the federal government in the form of stimulus money, and that's drying up and we have declining enrollment. And so um, it's going to, there's going to be tough times ahead and public school districts will not like it. But so talk to me about this caveat of hold harmless. So yeah. there's declining enrollment, and how does that get along or disagree with this idea of school districts being able to use previous enrollment numbers for their funding? So, you know, many states, not all, about half of states in this country acknowledge that when you put together these funding formulas, it takes the number of kids times some dollar amount, and that's how much districts get in state funding, give or take. The local district has to contribute, and there's a bunch of um, complexities involved in that. But more or less, you count the kids, you multiply it times an an amount of money. Uh, Most many states, about half states have recognized that if you don't count kids until October, 
you've already got your teaching staff, you've got kids assigned to classrooms. And if the number of kids this October is lower than the number last October, you can't like switch gears mid-year. That makes sense. So in many states, you get to use the prior year numbers. That's for planning. So you can hire your staff. Um, Some states let you use uh, the prior year or the year before, which is nice. You get a whole year to adjust your planning. Some states will take an average the prior year or the year before in case enrollment's going down. Uh, You know, these only count for if enrollment's going down. Missouri is an outlier in this because Missouri is the most generous state in the nation. Out of all the states, Missouri is the only one that you get to pick the last three years, whatever is the highest in attendance in the last three years. And during the pandemic, they made it four, which is insane. So right now, school districts are using their attendance numbers from 2019 before the pandemic. And we know for a fact kids have moved all over the place. We know enrollment is down. You can look at the um, daily attendance numbers, and I have. Uh, You can see how much they've gone down. So in 2023, if we're using 2019 attendance numbers, the state is funding about 65,000 students who are not enrolled, uh, who are not there. We call them ghost students. So these very generous uh, revenue protections for districts, which folks like to call hold harmless, basically mean that we're just funding a bunch of non-existent kids. And my estimate is that's about $175 million worth that could be going somewhere else. But instead, we're sending it to districts for kids they had four years ago. So to me, it seems like, and you can tell me if this is um, completely wrong, but in economics over the last couple of years, we've been hearing a lot, this phrase we've been hearing a lot is... uh, these impacts work on a lag. You raise interest rates, the negative implications work on a lag. It sounds like to me you're describing lagged implications of falling enrollment. At some point, even if it's four years, five years, three, at some point looking back X number of years, your enrollment will have declined. So is the long-term plan to just keep extending the window for hold harmless? I think the long-term plan is to raise the dollar amount per student to offset the decline in the enrollment so that the total amount districts get doesn't go down. Now, there's also a hold harmless in our foundation formula. Districts can't get less than they got in 2008. It's like we have a lot of work to do on our funding formula, but, you know, it's to keep it to protect these districts again from like making hard choices. And, um, in life in general, in professional life, in public sector life, hard choices need to be made. And I feel like we are trying to, in Missouri, we're just trying to um, suggest that everything is fine and we're all doing okay when we need to start making some of these hard choices. All right. So we've talked about the kindergarten bubble. There's fewer kindergartners and there soon will be yeah. fewer high schoolers. That checks out. We've talked about AP programs and the issues there. Uh, the drop in college degrees. Now I can hear people saying, well, that's because people are choosing to just go straight into their careers. People don't think maybe college is worth it. They don't want to take out debt. Um, So in your paper, you talk about college readiness or career readiness. So talk to me a little about a little bit about that career readiness part of it. What what does that mean? And how's Missouri doing in terms of like vocational schools and programs to get you just right into the job force? 
Yeah, I mean, we've changed our career technical technical education. So CTE, we've changed it around like many things at the state level. We've switched the program around. It has a ton of requirements to get your CTE certification. Uh, we aren't seeing that many kids actually hit that. Uh, the numbers are in my report, but um, but M- Missouri does have um, has a, a measure called college or career readiness, and every district gets a percentage of their high school graduates that meet this benchmark. It's a combination of ACT scores, ASVAB, which is the military exam, ACCUPLACER, um, ACT work key, which is for CTE students, um, and so it does sort of hit the college and career readiness. Last year of our graduates, the department reported that just 60% met the benchmark on any of those five measures. So 40% of our students graduated from high school with a diploma and did not hit a readiness benchmark in any of those. So they are not considered to be college or career ready. And just for um, context, uh, the ACT measure of college readiness is to get a 22. That's not like a high mark, right? That's a 22. So 40% of our students did not did not hit that measure. Uh, we, you know, some CTE students you can take um, while you're in high school, you can take it and get an industry recognized credential, which would be like getting, uh, becoming a, C- a certified nursing assistant or Adobe certified or uh, automotive service excellence certified, something that comes from the field that says this person is ready to get a job in the field. And last year, we had about 67,000 graduates and we had about 8,600 received an IRC. So 11 or 12%. So we're also not making sure that students in our CTE programs are leaving with those credentials. Uh, we have a lot of work to do there. And um, and I think what we need to move away from is this very complicated system we put into, into place. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So what do you what do you think is the one of the main causes of that? Is it a question of incentives that the, the system isn't incentivized to make these programs easier? Is it a lack of interest from students? What do you think? I don't think so. I don't think it's a lack of interest from students. I, I know that we've talked or folks have talked over the last decade about the stigma attached to being a Votech student. I think that's going away. I think that Votech covers so many fields now, including high tech fields, coding, um, uh, so many things. And I think that it's it's losing that stigma. But um I do think we have a complicated system and states that have decided they really want to increase the number of students who leave high school with a, an industry recognized credential have put in place uh, financial incentives where the district, the teacher and the students split some amount of money. So $500 gets split between student might get $50 and the teacher might get 100 and the district might get 350 something like that. Uh, states have also put that in place for uh, ad- advanced placement getting passing an exam, getting a three. And if you think about what that saves students in college tuition and what it means for having more kids be college ready for the state, that's pretty important. So they make a small investment in uh, incentivizing these programs. Tennessee just passed that two years ago. North Carolina does it, Florida, number of states, and they've seen their passing rates on AP exams and their attaining uh, industry recognized credentials go way up. So it's a system that works. Again, it's an economic incentive, but it seems to work. And I think that's something that Missouri should do 
if and when it decides to improve its funding formula. When you talk about a stigma, it seems like here we have, because we spoke earlier uh, about Mm -hmm. there's a stigma about going to college. You know, some people have it. So if there's a stigma against vocational training, stigma, they cancel out. So everyone don't, don't let stigmas uh, weigh your decision-making too heavily. College has has gone down in attractiveness, uh, particularly for people who would be going to college right now. But Fewer and fewer people think it's, air quotes, worth it. So, yeah, that definitely has uh, lost a little bit of its luster. But but I think that we need to help students while they're in high school at least get ready, do apprenticeships, do internships. You know, some states have a very generous open enrollment policy. We don't have any open enrollment policy, but some states have created for high school students programs where they could just take like a class at another district or they could take a class at another district, a class at a community college, a couple classes online, and they can put together like you do in college, right? You're like, you, you put together what are the five classes you need this semester how will you get them? What will your schedule be? They are letting high school students do that so that they can take advantage of whatever is within driving distance of their house and not simply driving to this one building and taking advantage of whatever is being offered in that building. So a little bit different where you can take advantage of a, you know, kind of a learn anywhere approach and you can get the things you need before you leave high school. All right, two final things before we go. First, what the state has done, and second, what you think the state can do. So in 2019, Governor Parson said uh, he, he's he got a new approach to economic and workforce development. We're sitting in the, it's almost 2024, it's October 2023, so uh, we're several years into this new approach to economic and workforce development. What do you think about the state's approach so far, some of the new programs? He signed uh, a few executive orders to create these programs. What do we know a few years out? So I just think that it's a perfectly okay program, but it's kind of too little too late. Like he focused it on uh, 25 plus year olds who didn't yet get a post-secondary credential and could go back and get one. I think that's fine. That's sort of like, you know, the Band-Aid after the fact. But could we work? My paper's got a lot of numbers in it. What we know about kindergartners and fourth graders. Could we work so that we are preparing the youngest kids today to not have that problem when they're 25? And that was kind of missing from his workforce development. So we could be doing things today for our youngest kids that would, you know, uh, we wouldn't have to fix a problem because the problem would have been diverted, right? And there are, um, so I have some policy implications in my paper. And what we could be doing is focusing much harder on early literacy. Now, DESE has put together early literacy, early literacy task force. They're working on the science of reading. They are working with teachers on the science of reading. Um, but last year, this is a very troubling number to me. Last year, 2022, 30% of our third graders were below the basic level in reading, which means they didn't ha- even have partial mastery. So we have, you know, you talk about a leading indicator, we have a big problem because those kids are now in fourth grade and uh, they can't read. They cannot read. And so they're moving on and they're going to need all of these extra supports when in some states, um, Mississippi has done this recently, they hit really hard on the science of reading, but also not let kids move on to the next grade if they are two grade levels behind. So we need to put in place some of these uh, stronger policies to make sure that these kids don't just move through and be part of that 40% who's not college or career ready. Um, We're doing a little bit, but we're not doing enough. Uh, We also... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, this idea, I 
I really want to highlight Avery Frank has, has written about this idea of yeah. uh, holding third graders back. And um, you, you spoke earlier about sometimes you, you just collide with reality and you have to make tough decisions and there's academic implications. There's a lot of social implications to yeah. um, holding kids back. But like you said, Mississippi's imp- implemented it and I think it's just time to start having these really difficult conversations. And some people may think, uh, you know, holding kids back is a, is whatever going too far, heavy handed. But as you point out in your report, it's been shown to be effective and letting students who can't read go on to what's a, uh, going from learn to read to read to learn, letting, yeah. letting them progress through the system is not doing them any favors. And ultimately not that many kids get held back, but when you have this, hard stop in place what happens is you start in like first and second grade saying we're afraid you're going to be in this group and you need to do extra reading supports and you need summer supports and you need to like they start to identify kids because putting that hard stop in place brings everybody to attention and no parent really wants that solution so it becomes sort of the solution of last resort and not that many kids get held back but we don't even have that policy really in Missouri. We kind of have something on the books. It is not at all enforced. So, you know, you have a policy that's not at all enforced. No one's going to pay attention to it. We need to have the policy in place to say, if you've been through all these steps and you still at the end of third grade aren't ready to move on, then you won't be moving on. But it would be, you know, stopgap, last resort, because like you said, there's a lot of considerations to take into account but that's it's a tough policy it's like putting letter grades on schools that i talk about all the time that's a tough policy where you say i'm sorry but that's an f school and we actually don't even apologize that's an f school and kids shouldn't be forced to go to school there for more than let's say two years but we are not willing to we the state is not willing to even say out loud that you know we have some there are some school districts in St. Louis County that 3% of the eighth graders are proficient in math. To call that an F school doesn't seem like a stretch to me, but you know, we are in the, we don't want anyone to feel bad mode still. So we're not doing it. But yeah, those are like, that's, that's tough, but early literacy is so important that that's where we should be putting our focus. I mentioned a couple others, changing the funding formula just generally so that we're not so ridiculously uh, compensating districts for the inability to adjust their spending. We we let them know, like, you need to have a smarter approach to how you finance your expenses so that you can be more flexible and you can adjust up and down. Uh, we certainly need open enrollment, even if it's just public schools or, like I mentioned, open course taking. We really need to open up in that way. Um, we have a lot of districts moving to four-day school weeks. That does not work for a lot of families. Those families deserve an op- to find an option that can work for them. I mean, there's like sort of like the 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 really bad situation where like, oh, God, I can't even send my kid to the school district where I live anymore because the schedule literally doesn't work. But then you also have innumerable situations where kids don't get along with the staff, where they're being bullied, where the classes are too big or too small, where their IEP isn't being well managed. I mean, there's so many situations that we need to let parents have more than a single option. Really, really important. And then um, building in these incentives for things like IRCs and AP so that our high school graduates are better prepared for what's next. 
and also competency-based education. I mentioned that Missouri's got a, a group of districts that are in, in an innovation zone, and they are allowed to innovate around competency-based education, which means you don't just get to the end of algebra, fail the algebra test, and move on <laughs> to geometry. Like a lot of kids, you know, they take algebra, they don't really get it, they get to the end, they don't pass the algebra end of course exam, and it's like, good luck to you. <laughs> they go on to geometry, never learning algebra. Competency-based or CBE is you progress as you become competent and you stick with something until you've learned it and then you move on. So it's a smarter approach. We could be doing it on a broader scale, but we're taking it very slowly and we had a task force and now we have a pilot program. And by the time it reaches all kids in the state, it'll probably be a decade and something else will have come along. But letting kids move at their own pace so that they could be on this grade level in math and this grade level in reading uh, and being more competency-based. I think that would be a great idea. Again, these are all sort of big and some of them are difficult, but if we don't, we can see where we're headed. Yeah, and that, uh, so my final question is, I get to see all of the, the Show Me Institute researchers go through this process of identifying a problem, researching the problem, and then putting out policy uh, suggestions to solve the problem. So my question for you about Missouri's workforce, now that you've gone through the process, you've done this analysis for the better part of a year now, worse than you thought, better than you thought, optimistic, pessimistic? I was surprised about the enrollment numbers. I was surprised how consistent the kindergarten cohort has been in, in its decline of, you know, about 0.2%, whatever it is per year. Like, I was a little surprised by that. I had seen that our enrollment had shrunk over the last few years, but then I was kind of surprised to know that, oh, yeah, this is just a, a rolling ball. <laughs> like, you could see this going on. I was surprised that the bachelor degree and uh, graduate degree percentages had declined. I thought that they were flat. Uh, I was surprised that they'd gone down and they've only gone down for two years and not by very much still like gone down. That feels kind of weird. Um, and I was surprised to see, and I didn't really mention this, but Missouri high schools have to follow up with their graduates in the fall to see where they went, where their kids went. And it's been going on for a long time. So they have, have a pretty good system in place. I don't know how many kids they reach, but their percentage going on to four-year schools and two-year schools has gone down. I was kind of surprised by that. And it's been going down since about 2014, 2017. So I was a little bit surprised by that too. Um like literally numbers of kids uh, has gone down and it's and that's not that goes bucks the trend the national trend so i was a little surprised by that um yeah i'm always like the person putting out the bad information like the doom and gloom scenario too and i i don't want it to be that way but i also feel like when i read the st louis post dispatch article that says enrollment's declining because of the pandemic or because parents started working from home and haven't or there's more remote workers and so they're just assuming their kids can learn remote or we don't know where they are i just am like that's absolutely wrong that is not why enrollment's declining that is incorrect so um so i you know i, I want to get the information out there just so that um folks can maybe begin to warm up to the idea that this is true and this is our reality and we need to start thinking about things differently. But, but yeah, there's a couple surprising things in there for sure. 
All right. And if you uh, want to begin to warm up to that idea, you can read <laughs> Susan's new report, The Future of Missouri's Workforce, up at showmeinstitute.org. Susan Pennegrass, Director of Education Policy at the Show Me Institute. Thanks for making the time to be a guest on your own podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much.